Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, what's good? What's good? Welcome back, everybody. I'm Jahan Jones. It's your girl, Taryn Finley. And it's your boy, Shakira Rombley. Y'all, 2021 is still showing us that Mother Nature ain't nothing to fuck around with. There's just so much happening across the states. Have y'all been watching what's been going on in Texas? For days now, not only Texas, but Louisiana and other places have been suffering due to quite frankly, gross negligence from the state and local leadership amid this severe winter snowstorm that we're seeing. I was scrolling the other day and, um, you know, before things started to like really pop off and I saw folks sharing videos and images of their homes flooded. They didn't have power running water. People have had to scavenge and destroy furniture for firewood because it's literally freezing in their homes Mm -hmm. and they don't have heat. People are dying. The only way to feel about this is um, enraged. Enraged. Because this is, this shouldn't be happening at all. You know, I know that Texas doesn't, in in other areas, don't have the infrastructure to deal with um, this snow. But the fact that there's so much inaction, it's, it's, it's just disgusting. Right, right. And I mean, you mentioned at the top, Shaquille, that Mother Nature is acting up. But to Taryn's point, it really is a lot of government officials who have been doing the acting up and poorly preparing Texas for this kind of uh, these kind of weather conditions. Other states have been able to, you know, weatherize uh, their power supply and make sure that it's not damaged in this sort of way. But Texas, of course, is managed by its own um, power grid, and that power grid is controlled by an independent group called ERCOT. And so, yeah, it's just like to see this kind of negligence, to Terrence's point, it's just been really angering. And it's just had me thinking last year, do y'all remember there was this huge explosion in Beirut? Y'all remember mm-hmm. it? The, mm-hmm. the images were, yeah. right, they were spread mm-hmm. all across social media. And the backstory is that there was all this ammonium nitrate that was being stored next to this, uh, what they say was a fireworks warehouse. And that was a major um, issue of corruption in the country because like the energy sector was colluding with the government to place these hazardous materials next to this place where it was clearly it shouldn't have been. And it just has me thinking about all the ways that the United States power supply is corrupted. And we're really seeing that in Texas right now. If we don't start to think about the ways that it's kind of leading to demise in other countries, we're going to start to see these kinds of things take place in the United States as well. And that, that's been on my mind all throughout, uh, you know, as I've seen things take hold in Texas. You're right. And like the thing that I've been thinking about is the elected officials in Texas. We have the mayor who's basically like <laughs> survival of the fittest, y'all. Basically, he has since resigned, but the literally mayor of Colorado- said that. Literally, li- verbatim said it's survival of the f- Only the strongest will survive. That was in Colorado City, right? Yeah, that's in Colorado City. Right. And of course, we have Ted Cruz, who's basically <laughs> heading towards vacation in Cancun. In Cancun so right it- now while people are freezing. So it's indicative mm. of the Republican Party, how they consistently handle people's mis- misfortunes. I will never forget 
during Donald Trump's interview when he was talking about COVID-19 and he casually said, yeah, people are dying. And this is just very, very reminiscent of that moment because they don't give a fuck. They don't care at all. I mean, if you remember the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, last year was telling people that they need to get back to work, even if it meant risking their lives, they got to get back to work during COVID. So, yeah, this Mm -hmm. is just the this is their modus operandi. Yeah. And, you know, there's still snow coming, you know, within the next few days and millions are still without electricity, still don't have the resources they need to survive. Uh, This is about to get even uglier. It's already ugly. But I'm 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 frightened. I'm 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 utterly frightened. I'm scared as well because how I found out about the news was I was casually going through my Instagram feed and one of my friends basically was just like, I don't have any power. All of my food has expired because I don't have yeah. no power. I'm freezing. I'm sleeping in my coat. And it's just like, damn, in the United States of America. I hope this gives the people of Texas a righteous rage that they can use and funnel toward, you know, a political end to get a lot of these people out of office who are just watching as they as they suffer, you know? If there's any sort of benefit to come from this, I hope that, you know, some of that entitlement we were talking about in the past episodes, people really apply that in demanding the lives that they deserve for themselves from their yeah. elected officials. Yeah, agree, agree. This is like really breaking my heart. And this topic has really made me think about lost. And 2020 was a very difficult year. We lost so much, but we are losing a lot of icons and legends in 2021 as well. Um, We recently lost Mary Wilson, who was basically one of the founding members of the Supreme. And she did a really, really great job at preserving the legacy of the Supreme. She's always, but before you'd always see her out there in interviews, basically talking about the impact of the Supremes. We've also lost Baseball Hall of Famer, Hank Aaron, gospel singer, Dernice Pace, just so many, so many, so many people. And all of this also makes me think about unsung individuals in our community and in our culture who don't get their roses when they're alive. Like, Mary Wilson, like Florence Ballard from the Supremes. Florence Ballard. I don't know if y'all know who Florence Ballard is, but Dream Girls, that's all Florence Ballard. Basically, that is the story of what was supposed to be the Supremes back in the day. And Florence Ballard was known to have the voice, the big voice of the group. But she felt marginalized in the group and she felt like she was pushed to the back and she was eventually kicked out of the group and replaced. And She basically died with a broken heart and her legacy often is not highlighted because I guess people often focus on Motown as a as a big conglomerate and also Diana Ross. So she often did not get her roses. And Mary Wilson, I think she got a bit of her roses, but Mary Wilson, of course, is not celebrated in the way that Diana Ross is celebrated. And this just makes me think about all of the people in our culture who do not get their roses. Who are some of the people that you all love and admire who you want to celebrate who do not get their roses Mm. when they should? Oh, my God. Mm. You know, there are so many people, um, so many black people in, in, you know, all areas that I feel like just are criminally unsung. Mm -hmm. Um, I think of Bianca Lawson, who has had this, you know, decades long career and is still looking like, you know, still looking like she was in Buffy, like she looked (laughs) in Buffy and saved the last dance. And she's absolutely killing it on mm-hmm. Queen Sugar right now, but I don't think we talk about her enough. Um, I think about Quivisione Wallace, who was the youngest person ever nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars for Beast of a Southern Wild. That movie is 
so beautiful one of me and my mom's favorite movies um she's also black annie like that girl acts down and i know i think a lot of times when we talk about unsung we are we don't necessarily talk about like those who are like younger but i think Mm -hmm. it applies to them too Mm-hmm. Um, before this, we were talking about Jasmine Sullivan and her. She's been in music for over a decade, and it's just now getting some of the flowers that know, she deserves with hotels, you know. But since I'm not scared <laughs> of lions and tigers and bears, since I bust the windows out your car, like literally all of that, and hell, even in rap, with Soldier Boy is unsung. I mean, you know <laughs> this. Boy, you know like, this. Soulja Boy is criminally this is, this unsung. Is a Soulja Say Boy what household. you want about him. Say what you <laughs> Yo. want about him. Especially in, in more recent years. However, that man revolutionized um, how we break music today. It wouldn't be no TikTok dances without Yo, no Soulja Boy. No lie. I used to be a Soulja Boy fanatic. Like, I used to listen to the deep Soulja Boy cuts. Mm-hmm. And I remember... Yes, off YouTube. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I'm LimeWire. I was yes. on LimeWire too. And, you know, Shout out to all them viruses the, LimeWire gave us. You know, the statute of limitations is up on that. Hello. But I remember where I was when Crank that debuted on 106 in Park. So, you you know, Soulja Boy's a real one. Mm-hmm. Music With Rico, all of that, all of that. So who's on your list? Who's on your list, Jahan? Mm. Well, did y'all watch? I mean, I checked out recently that um, HBO documentary, Black Art in the Absence of Light, and it really speaks mm. to this whole point of being unsung. It's about the uh, art curator, David Driscoll, this black art curator who in 1976 created this exhibition, Two Centuries of Black American Art. And it was really intended to, you know, highlight a lot of the black artists who have been, you know, under... Uh, uh, under discussed and underappreciated over time. So, you know, I love that documentary. They were really highlighting a lot of, you know, black artists who are doing it now, Kahindi Wiley and Amy Sherrill, mm. but also some people, you know, from back in the day who have been doing it as well. You know, the Kerry James Marshalls and some, you know, iconic black artists, of course, yeah. uh, Basquiat. So I've been checking that out. I want to make sure I shout out uh, the author and the educator, Emily Bernard. She's uh, an incredible black author who does black anthological works. She did th- this book called Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine. Um, mm-hmm. I've been following a lot of her works, especially as it relates to the Harlem Renaissance. She did uh, a book called Remember Me to Harlem, The Letters of Langston Hughes and Carl Van Vechten. So I just, you know, these people who are really saving the saving black history and really like excavating mm-hmm. it, I, I've been obsessed with them over the past year as we've been you know, trapped in the house, and these people have yeah. really been nourishing my mind over this time. So, unsung to that. me at least. I, I got to make sure the world knows who these people are. Yeah, yeah, that's important work. Like you know, because honestly, it wouldn't be no history without Black history. Exactly. Let's be honest. Exactly. So, the, so, so that work is is so important. So important. I love that. I'm gonna have to check that out. As I think about unsung, I think about the levels to unsung, right? Because mm-hmm. there's so many iconic Black actresses who I feel like are unsung, and they do not get their roses. I got to start with Vivica A. Fox. Vivica, you know, from Set It Off to Tuka Play at That Game to Soul Food, Soul Food with the auntie haircut. I think that she's been in so many great movies that sometimes it pains me that she has not been, you know, given her roses from like the Academy or from Golden Globes. Like, cause she's just that iconic. And it's not only her, it's people like Loretta Devine who can do it all. You know what I mean? I guess it's all the black aunties, right? Not getting their roses, which is why I guess we're here to give it to them. But like Taryn said, it also touches on the young because like, I love K. Michelle. K. Michelle, I'm a K. Michelle stan. 
Listen, I became Very a believer. special. <laughs> all of that. All of that. I went to a concert with my cousin. He's from London. And he was like, we're going to see Cam Michelle. And I was like, I ain't going to see no damn Cam Michelle. I left that show a believer. I pre-ordered all the albums. I you been turned her. out sad. Okay. Okay. Right. What do they call K Michelle's followers? They got like a Barb's type name. No, she's the Rebels. Rebels. The <laughs> okay. Oh, the Rebels, my bad. Rebels, Rebels. yeah. The but I think she's so unsung. This woman can yodel. She can play the piano. She can play the guitar. Her voice, I mean, she made a song singing opera all about her pussy. Like, she's just iconic. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> sold. I'm sold. <laughs> to me. Yeah. No, but, but Shaquille, like, Shaquille, I think you have a really good point. And then I, I'm, I've I've been wondering like how do we define unsung, right? Are we defining unsung by those who aren't decorated by like white institutions, institutions right. that weren't made for us? Are we defining unsung by, you know, oh, they've been out here, but like we like as a community haven't like lifted them up and given them enough flowers, you know? Because I think that this concept of unsung and this concept of like us getting shut out and left out of, out of these conversations. That is why a lot of, that's why a lot of our institutions were made, right? The soul train awards, BET awards, uh, NAACP, like the list goes on and on where we have space to uplift and to give these people flowers. But then, you know, as like time progresses and as like kind of the rules of the games change, you wonder like, okay, are we really giving those flowers, those do flowers to the people who deserve it the most? You know, I really love TV one's unsung um, show because I think that like they really do that. You know, they, they try to like rectify what may have been erased or looked over in history um, as far as like the giants in our community. But there, there are just so many and I I don't know like if that need will ever be met, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree with you because I think that it's just indicative of like consistent treatment of black folks not getting mm-hmm. their roses consistently. But one thing I will say, and I don't want to give our generation too much of a pat on our backs, but I think that we're doing a really good job with uplifting mm-hmm. our legends. Like Jennifer Lewis, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I remember somebody fucked up a call yeah. somebody else by accident. She was like, I've done Broadway, I've done mm-hmm. TV, I've done film. Like act like you know, don't fuck with yeah. me. You know, so yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. that we're doing a much better job with celebrating our legends and also coming back to our institutions and like celebrating our institutions from the NAACP awards to the yeah. Soul Train Awards. Right, yeah, right. no, that's true. I will say that like every time, every time the Oscars comes around, Black Twitter will not let the Academy sleep because we remind them of all of the fuck ups that they did in the past. Mm-hmm. I'm still pissed about Angela Bassett not getting an Oscar for what's love got to do with it because like what like did y'all see that like are you like that was acting she became Tina Tina Turner (laughs) yeah so I agree with you Shaquille it's like sometimes these institutions acknowledge the greatness but Sometimes they kind of string us along. You know, last year we acknowledged it, then the, the following year we won't. It's almost as though it's, it's like a, when it's convenient for y'all. Yeah. Right. It's a TV show mm-hmm. with ebbs and flows, and they know that they just got to keep us engaged, whether it's through anger or or joy. But, you know, as we celebrate these, uns, these unsung people, it's just had me thinking about over the past 
you know, like in every successive generation, there are like huge stars, but then there are tons yeah. of people who do that same work who you just don't know of. And like, yeah. it really is through that research and that, that, that study that you yeah. come across these, you know, unknown people. So I think, you know, yeah. we're doing that this month, but hopefully we kind of carry that spirit going forward. Just kind of, what is the, the, the spirit of the of Sankofa moving forward, but looking, looking back. Yeah. And hopefully as we do that, you know, we're able to encourage the game to change in a way that like opens up more doors for people who are like, who are like black and just super talented and super Mm -hmm. overlooked to get those looks to end up, you know, being uh, signed to labels, being in, in certain roles and hell, even Mm -hmm. outside of entertainment, like going into like different fields hopefully you know more doors are able to open and more glass ceilings are able to be shattered as we you know are loud about uplifting these folks exactly and i'm happy that you said i just want to say this jahan and taryn like this like you're right it's not only the entertainers that are unsung it's often sometimes the writers even as journalists sometimes we're unsung you know what i mean like is the producers is the makeup artist so Taryn is right. Let's get in a culture of celebrating everyone, everyone with talent, everyone who's bringing something to the table. That's mm-hmm. a bar. Not just those with height, not just those that's trending, okay? Mm. And that's that. Bars. We have to break away real quick, but when we return, you'll hear from a Hollywood trailblazer responsible for bringing some of your favorite classic storylines to life. Felicia D. Henderson joins us next. And that's that. Stay with us, y'all. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Speaking of unsung, we have someone very special on the show today. In our continued celebration of Black History Month and giving Black women their flowers, our colleague Aaron Evans sat down with legendary TV writer and producer Felicia D. Henderson. Felicia Henderson has worked on everything, y'all. Family Matters, Moesha, Sister, Sister, Everybody Hates Chris, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Soul Food, the TV series, all the hits. So let's take a listen to their conversation. So I, of course, really want to spend some time talking about all of the series that Black TV fans know you for, like Moesha and Sister, Sister, um, of course, Soul Food, and also your work on Empire. But first, I'd really love to hear about some of the current projects you're working on. I know you're in the middle of, of, of some big projects, um, and so I'd love to hear um, what's really keeping you busy right now. Well, thank you. You started right where I am right now. I love it. Um, You know, one of the things that's keeping me busy 
seven days a week, about 20 hours a day right now um, is a new show that I'm running a Netflix show called First Kill. And um, it is, uh, I'm very excited about it. It is a based on a short story uh, written by Victoria Schwab um, about basically uh, two girls who fall in love, high school girls, um, and it's vampire versus vampire slayer. And uh, I love it. It is so interesting to me. I have not played with monsters before, so it is fun to get in there and play with monsters. I'm also writing a limited series that uh, for Amazon and MGM, the studio, that is my what I call my heart's work. It's a civil rights era story about Black girls, you know, that I had not come upon before. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't feel like their story has been told. And we see a lot about the, you know, great men of the era and some about the women. But children were such a big part of what turned the civil rights movement around and moved it forward. And their story hasn't been told. I talked to the, they were girls then, but the women now in their 70s and 80s. And I'm inspired by them, you know, and I feel a responsibility to, to them to get their story right. It's called 45 Days, but it's been a year, you know, of just research. So I've been, you know, deep in that and, um, and developing it. That's awesome. I feel like hearing about a, a teenage vampire series and then a civil rights limited series <laughs> is very much indicative of how diverse <laughs> your body of work is. And I, I'll get to that a little bit later, but I, I did want to kind of go back in time a little bit and talk about uh, your transition into the TV industry and you first were working in corporate finance, but mm -hmm. how did you end up going from that to writing jokes for Urkel on Family Matters? <laughs> that is quite a journey, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when you put it like that. <laughs> My life continues to be, um, you know, full of God's surprises. Um, and so much of it, you know, I, I sure I plan and I have dreams and goals and, you know, desires. But so much of what I look back, I'm like, that wasn't what you had planned. That wasn't the uh, that wasn't on the, the vision board, you know. But even then, I was going back to school to get an MBA because I was working in corporate finance. I was working in, in corporate America. My boss was the vice president of finance and I was the librarian there, the finance librarian. But I kept getting more interested in his work. He kept bringing me more into it. And then he said, you know, I think you have a knack for this, you know. I'm like, okay, I want to learn that. And so suddenly that's what I was doing. And then he said, you got to go back to school. So really, my transition into the television at all happened because I needed to go back to school to get an MBA. And the Peabody Foundation and NBC had a fellowship for people who were interested in MBAs, but maybe management and television. 
and I didn't have any money. So I thought I'm going to apply for that fellowship. They don't have to know that after the MBA, I have no intentions of going into television. (laughs) So, you know, I wrote this great essay about how all I'd ever wanted to do was be in management and television. And I got the fellowship and it was a full ride. So my MBA education was completely paid for by the Peabody Foundation and NBC at the University of Georgia, which is, you know, where the Peabody's are housed. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm actually interested in this. And I just switched gears after I graduated. I went into the NBC management training program. And so I was a junior executive in training there and that's what then led to my exposure to writing and, and, and reading scripts, really, you know, reading script after script and just so fascinated by it. And what was the process? And one of my bosses finally said, you give really good notes and feedback. You are sort of a natural storyteller. There's this program called the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop, which is sort of a boot camp for comedy writers. And I think you should apply. And I was like, but I'm not a writer. And he said, yes, you are. You know, turns out he knew me better than I knew myself, you know, except when I then thought about it. And as I, you know, think about my life over the years, I was always a writer. Uh, You know, my father kept my diaries from when I was eight and nine years old. Uh, I wrote in my high school newspaper. I wrote at UCLA. I was the editor of the MBA newspaper when I was in business school. So from the Warner Brothers program, I was placed on Family Matters as a writer's trainee. And that's where it all began. That's where I started writing those, did I do that jokes? (laughs) (laughs) And they have all lived with us ever since then. And it's, it's funny to think about, you know, those, the way we end up in places that we were supposed to be in the first place. That's exactly right, Erin. I love that. You also worked on uh, Moesha and Sister, Sister, um, mm-hmm. and recently those shows joined Netflix and there'd been an outpouring of like asks for networks or streamers to pick up uh, Moesha in particular. Mm-hmm. What has it felt like to feel kind of a little renaissance of those popular shows from the 90s? It's so fun, isn't it? I mean, three shows that I worked on or were part of that. And to, you know, see the social media, you know, discussions and chatter and dialogue about those, Um, the good and the bad, to be honest, because I also have seen the feedback about Countess's character, Countess Vaughn's character. Um, There's those jokes, a lot of fat shaming jokes. I've, you know, I've read a lot about that kind of stuff as well. And so it's interesting to see that stuff, you know, 20 plus years after you worked on it. But, you know, for me, it's all good memories because one, it was the beginning of my career. Um, That show was, uh, Moesha was, you know, co-created by uh, two women who are still to this day two of my best friends, uh, Sarah Finney Johnson and Vita Spears. Um, You know, they were my original mentors. I met them at Family Matters. They were producers there. That's how we started our relationship and, you know, I was working on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I was on the Fresh Prince when I got the call from Sarah saying, we've got this new show and I know you have a job. I was like, I'm there. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so, I mean, it was the first show in television history to be told from the point of view of a black girl. And so to be part of history while working with, you know, two of your best friends and a talent the size of Brandy, like all of those things coming together. It's where I also met Mara Brock Akil, who also became, you know, one of my girls, one of my best friends. And so, you know, it's nothing but love and great memories for me having done that show. We were a family. We were very much a family. So the ones who passed on, um, you know, definitely way too soon, you know, your heart gets full in terms of those memories as well. Mm. I want to stick with the early part of your career for a little bit. You know, how did you seek really to define yourself in Hollywood when you first began your journey? Mm. You know, to be honest, Aaron, when I was starting out, I wasn't seeking to define myself. You know, I was just seeking to get in where I fit in, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, I just wanted, you know, when I started out, I just wanted to be in the game. You know, I just wanted to be in the room where it happened. And so uh, that's all I cared about. And so I was like, you just have to work hard that, you know, I've always had a strong work ethic that I get from my dad. You know, um, you show up and you show out, you do everything that you can to, uh, you know, working hard is how you show that you're grateful that you got a job. Uh, and that's all you have to do. You just work hard. And that is how you show gratitude. It really is how I see anything that I'm doing. I feel the same now, you know, with first kill, I'm, that's still my sort of motto, you know, to show Netflix that you are grateful that they have put millions and millions of dollars in your hand. You go and you work as hard as you can to make this show a hit, you know, writing is the gift that God decided I should have. In some ways, it has nothing to do with me. And so the way that I show gratitude to God for giving me a gift that I absolutely love and passionate about is to do it well, you know, to never sort of do it, to do the best that I can always is, again, is the work of gratitude in my life, um, which is just a very important thing to me. So in some ways, when I've looked at my career, you know, and looked at the careers of friends and just, you know, colleagues, I see like, I'd probably be a lot richer if I had such a plan, but I, I never did, to be honest. It was, you know, I care about sort of my intellectual curiosity, creative curiosity has always led me more than here's where I want to be in the business in five years. And probably, to be very honest with you, um, here now in my 50s, it really wasn't until, you know, March of 2020, COVID, of course, shut the city down and started to give you time to think. By, you know, May, um, a a good friend had taken his life as a result of Mm. where we find ourselves you know, too many people who already had too many demons started having too much time with those demons as a result of being home. And then another colleague took her life and it stops you. And then George Floyd was murdered. 
And so truly, Aaron, for the first time in my career, and yes, I waited again for my 50s to say, what do I want my career to look like? I am empowered by where my heart sits as a Black person who sees the world recognizing the depth of institutional racism. And it's not like I want to walk around always going, calling people out and pointing people out. And you can imagine in Hollywood, there's a lot of bad behavior, you know, things even in this world where they're like, we all need to change. There needs to be a change. We all see it now. There's institutional racism. We all must change. The system must change. And then you see them go back to business as normal, but feeling better about themselves because they now acknowledge that it exists, except you don't see a change, except you still hear problematic language. For me, it will not exist in my space. And on the creative side, it does mean something has to touch my heart and feel necessary for me to pursue it. And of course, I'm in entertainment. My first job is to entertain, but I will entertain on projects that feed my soul. Well, speaking of feeding the soul, at what point did you realize that you wanted to go from comedy writing to producing a drama series? I do believe in recreating yourself. If you're unhappy where you are, recreate yourself. And so to that end, you know, I'd written uh, eight o'clock family comedy for a few years and I loved it. There truly to this day, there is no better job than sitting in a room where your job is to laugh. Your job is to be funny. Your job is to put that joke, those jokes on the page and to be paid for that. I, I will always be grateful for that being a part of my career and where I started because it was joyful and you just couldn't even believe it, you know, and to have worked on things like Everybody Hates Chris in the first season where, you know, Chris Rock was in the room every day. Like, it just didn't get any better. So, you know, I'd obviously been able to make a living several years doing this thing that I do naturally, but I wanted to understand it technically, if you will, and um, academically. And so I decided to go back to school. You know, I wrote my first screenplay at UCLA and that screenplay won the screenplay competition. And it was a family drama called Samsonite Blue. I will never forget it. It was semi-autobiographical about my relationship with my youngest brother and our places in our larger family. You know, my alcoholic sister, God rest her soul. I wrote that, won that competition at the exact time that Showtime was deciding to adapt soul food to television. And one of the judges for the UCLA competition happened to be the woman who was head of drama development at Paramount, which was going to produce the series. She read that, you know, and said, I'd like to meet this writer because it was all anonymous, you know, so my name was given to her. And then when I met her, she said, you know, we have a Felicia Henderson I'm here on the lot, but she writes comedy. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm that Felicia Henderson. And so it proved that I could do what Soul Food was doing. And that's how I made my transition. Like I met with her. She liked me a lot. 
you know, I met with Tracy Edmonds and Edmonds Entertainment, who's also producing it, George Tillman, who had written and directed the movie. You know, I met with them all and then met with Showtime and the president of Showtime, Jerry Offsay, who I give him all props, you know, for starting my drama career. They asked me lots of questions, but the one that was still stays with me is, why should I hire a comedy writer to adapt soul food? And I was like, oh my God, of all the questions that I prepared and rehearsed, that wasn't one of them <laughs> for some reason. It should be, you would think so, right? And I just said, well, I'm one of six girls, so I will never run out of material. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I got the job, Erin. I got the job. I mean, I was a big fan of the show. I was 15 when it aired. And my mom and my brother and I, on Wednesday nights, we would always be at church. And when I tell you we would race home to make sure that we saw the opening credits of Soul Food <laughs> and we're not late to see that Black cast... Um, it was one of the highlights of our week uh, growing up. Yeah, that's so beautiful. You say, you know, rushing home to see, you know, those main titles open, the baby face uh, written and performed theme music. I mean, all of everything about that show was a blessing. Yes, I, I you know, created the show, but I was a fan of it too. Like what you saw and how you and your mom and your brother felt I was feeling that too. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so proud to be watching this, that this opening, like you said, of these beautiful Black people of, you know, every hue, because that was important to me too. I'm still thankful for the relationships that, you know, I developed there and the careers that I began there. You know, I look back at how, wonderful people like Kenya Barris has done. He started with me there, you know. Um, I look back at, um, you know, Salima Kill, who, you know, co-created and, and executive producing Black Lightning. That's my brother right there. Like, that is my brother. I love him so much and to see him do well. I was so excited to get that job because I was such a fan of the film. And then I had literally at Paramount, we were assigned a Black executive, Brett King, and at Showtime, I was assigned a Black executive, Perlina Abokwe, you know, who is huge now and running NBC Universal. Um, so all of it was joy. It's like, wow, we have Black executives, so no one's ever going to ask me once. So would someone really do that? You know, <laughs> I'm never going to be asked that question. There was this wonderful shorthand of understanding and also, and I guess what, you know, the idea that I would not treat this family, though, in a precious way, just because there had not been a successful Black drama before us, but in terms of, you know, one that had been able to stay on past a season or two, it had not happened. So I wanted to be the first. And for me, one of the, I thought, part of that secret sauce was going to be to not be precious about what we depicted and also to not let the burden, if you will, on your shoulders be so heavy with, oh my God, I'm getting this chance to do something we never get to do. 
So sometimes what happens is you go, all the characters better be perfect because we don't get this chance much. So we don't want to show any negative because we don't, you know, there are not enough options out there. There's not enough. But I, I went the opposite way. I said, my plan is to show our three dimensionality is to show us warts and all to show us as complete people. That's what my goal is. And that's what I try to do. Of course, sometimes my people would let me know. I'm kind of glad there was no social media at the time because there absolutely were times the Black Twitter would have had my neck. We went there. We went there. So, um, you know, but uh, so I'm very proud of it. And I think it it still stands the you know test of time. I do want to ask a really specific question about soul food. For me, one of the storylines that actually really resonated that I think if if Soul Food aired today would really resonate as well is um, Terry dealing with her anxiety disorder. And it was something, you know, as a teen, I had never seen on television before, but now people talk about anxiety a lot more freely and them dealing with it. Um, how did you work that into the series and why was it important for you to show that narrative? Mm. Well, remember that part where I said Jerry Offsay, the president of Showtime, asked me that question. I said, "Yes, you know, I'm one of six girls, so I'll never run out of material. I have, I have two brothers too, but I'm, you know, I'm one of eight, so I don't want my brothers to be like, how are you leaving us out?' So, I'm, <laughs> but I do, you know, one of six girls, and um, my youngest sister at the time, you know, was suffering debilitating um, anxiety with debilitating anxiety disorder. And, um, and that was my introduction to it. My oldest sister was diabetic and really, it was a really horrible case. Like they just couldn't get it under control. And finally she had to go on dialysis and that led to her suffering anxiety disorder. So I watched them both and, you know, I was particularly close to my youngest sister and all of its forms and what it did. And then I thought, I have to believe that she's not the only one. You know, I have to believe that even just being a black woman um, who is accomplished and successful and trying to make it in a world that is often hostile to your success can create the perfect storm that would lead to this disorder. And then I thought, well, wouldn't that be perfect to depict that um, through, to demonstrate that through uh, the Terry Joseph character, who was such a woman. And believe it or not, at the time, and even now, people were like, but it was so realistic. Yeah, it's stuck with me since then. And um, I just still think it was a very powerful portrayal. Let's jump ahead to uh, the quad which I, to be honest, was very surprised that it aired on BET. There aren't a lot of television networks in general that focus on the experience of a Black woman who experiences sexual assault. And this series was set in an HBCU. I'm, I'm curious about two things, like what attracted you to that project, but also did you experience pushback at the network on how you would approach the series? Thank you for asking about the quad. I, you know, often I just think nobody knows about the quad. Nobody, oh, you know, that was but my show. <laughs> to this day, it bugs me that BT didn't properly support it, didn't properly market it, 
didn't put the money behind it, I think the quad could have been huge. But I was originally brought to that um, actually through two things, through uh, Rob Hardy, who, um, you know, we were having breakfast and he was telling me about an idea that he had. And that was happening at the same time that Loretha Jones, my the beloved Loretha Jones, was the president of BT at the time. And I loved Loretha, had known her for many years. Um, and she had asked me, you know, will you come do something for me at BT? And because it was Loretha, I said, of course. And I tell these stories this way, Aaron, so that people who hear, particularly starting out, can see you know, it's not like some straight line that leads you to success or, you know, to jobs or to create. It's the hustle. You continue to hustle or you continue to build your relationships or, you know, someone like Rob, like we just had breakfast and, oh, we should just catch up. Like you never know where it's going to come from, you know. And so he pitched me his version and I said, I, I would love to do something, you know, set at an HBCU. I had um, a niece and a nephew, you know, were educated at HBCUs. Um, so I'd like to say I was too, because my money was at those HBCUs. Well. <laughs> yeah, so I said, I like that, but here's my spin on it. You know, I would like, um, what I'm interested in is the exploration of a woman in a man's world. You know, if we can add that element that in this world that still, you know, has always been a bastion of success for men and men run HBCUs and, you know, the successful men and to put a woman. And I was also interested in sort of intra-racial politics. So this woman who, you know, comes from the North thinks that just because she's black, then she's going to fit in and at HBCU in the South and anything, but that is true. She is not welcome nor wanted for, you know, who she is and, and because of what her gender is. So I called Aretha. I said, I think I have that thing I want to do. And he'd been talking to BT too. And then that became the quad. And in terms of that first season, you know, through line of, you know, about date rape, um, I did get pushback from the network on, you know, it being so heavy and are people going to want to watch? And it's supposed to be about the celebration of Black education you know, um, being educated at a historically black uh, college. And so they didn't really want to do that. Um, but I thought we could, you know, have our cake and eat it too. We could still celebrate football and Greek life and the marching band that is done at HBCUs like is done nowhere else. And also tell a story that needed to be told. But again, this is 20 years after Soul Food and what I was hearing at at BET was, well, it's the first time we're ever seeing a show set at an HBCU. Do we want to be talking about rape culture? Yes, we do. Absolutely. Because I have a responsibility to those Black girls. Yes, we do. It's happening there too. It's not just happening at predominantly white institutions. And so that's why that became the story. And, you know, I was doing a HBCU tour and at one of my stops, you know, one of the young women kind of followed us out and said, you know, can I talk to you for a minute? And of course she was being told, no, she's going. She was like, but you could see in her eyes, whatever she needed to say, she needed to say. So I stopped. I was like, no, I'm going to talk to her. And she 
near tears said, thank you for that story. And thank you for the, for choosing the party girl, you know, not the nice innocent character who we'd all feel sorry for, but the party girl that made it complicated to say, did she quote unquote, ask for it? She said, because that girl was me. Mm. And because I saw that, I finally told. Mm. Wow. I think that girl and myself stood in that hall and hugged and cried for five minutes. Wow. For that one experience alone, that show was worth doing and you can't tell me anything. For that one moment alone. So I still miss that show. I still, you know, but you know what I predict? That because we have the MVP, Madam Vice President, who went to Howard University. Yes. And now white people suddenly know what HBCUs mean. Mm -hmm. They finally go, oh, what is this Black Panalytic Council? Like they understand our power because we just elected Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We did that. Yep. Black Greek system did that. HBCUs did that. Black women did that. I predict that in the next year to two, you will see another show about life on an HBCU campus because they all know what it is now. I sure hope so. Well, Felicia, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. I know you have a very busy schedule, um, but it was truly a dream to be able to chat with you about your work. I appreciate that, Aaron, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you for the work that you're doing to give me an opportunity to say to people, you know, hey, if this little poor girl from Pasadena who grew up on Medi-Cal and food stamps can pursue her dream, so can you. Mm, Beautiful. And that's that for this week. Thanks again to our guest, legendary Felicia D. Henderson, and to HuffPost's very own Aaron Evans. Our show is produced and edited by Izzy Philly Walk by Faith, Not by Sight. That's Nick Offenberg and Sarah Patterson. I'm Jahan Jones. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Jahan. I'm Taryn Finley. You can find me at underscore tearing it up. And I'm your boy Shaquille Rombley. You can follow me at Rombley everywhere. We'll be back next week, but until then, you know what to do. Keep it juicy. Juicy fruit. Bye, y'all. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.